0: Show you a better way you don't have to be. hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast as always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't today is December 2nd 2014 this is episode 1475 of the survival podcast and I have a disclaimer for you. If you have not eaten, if you have not eaten, as you're listening to this podcast, you may want to eat before you listen to it, because I'm going to make you hungry today. Yes, today the Survival Podcast will be focused on a lighthearted, fun topic that I do believe is a prepper topic, cooking. I'm going to do another cooking show. Today I'm going to do, 1475 will be Meals Perfect for Cold Weather Now, they're not only meals that are good for cold weather, but everything I'm going to tell you about today is delicious when it's cold outside. And it's easy to cook. And I want to talk about cooking from a techniques perspective today. And I want to talk about why cooking is a prepper topic beyond just if you've ever lived on MREs for six months, you know why it is, which I say a lot when I talk about Chef Keith Snow. Before I get into cooking today, though, let us take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you. Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sawtooth Tactical is sponsored the day number one today. Sawtooth has all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, from Magpole magazines to position bags and everything in between. They're called Sawtooth because they're nestled in the Sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, veteran-owned and veteran-operated. Check them out today at sawtac.com for really cool stuff like the awesome manly titanium spork. And lots of other cool stuff. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time because it's true. There's a triangle of gun operator efficiency. I don't know uh, if anybody else calls it that. It's what I've always referred to it as. That There's three parts to being an effective operator of a weapon. The first is the weapon itself. You don't have a gun. You're not a gun operator. You're uh, no anything else you want to be. But you're not a gun operator without a gun. The second is you, the operator, and your training and your skill set. And the third is the ammo. The last thing you need when uh, you're in a a, a situation where you actually have to rely on your weapon is for an ammo to malfunction. And that's why I think that we need to be really careful about what we choose to carry from ammo. We need to train so we can deal with malfunctions. And we need to train with live rounds. We need to get out we need to shoot. And we need ammo for when prices go crazy because they do on occasion when gun grabbers go crazy. So I try to keep stocked up on ammo at all times, and uh, I go to BulkAmmo.com when I need to do just that. You go there, and you'll see why. They have great prices on all the common calibers, lightning-fast shipping. I mean, shipping so fast, you would be like, how did that stuff get to my door already? Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. And remember, Sawtooth Tactical, Bulk Ammo, many of our other sponsors, and a total of 60 vendors now do offer discounts to members of My Support Brigade. If you want to join the Member Support Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner, and you can find out how to do just that. Uh, Once you sign up, you'll get over $150 worth of free eBooks on day one, access to members-only content. All those great discounts, that will more than pay for your membership and a whole lot more. Check it out today, the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Uh, I do give you guys a discount to thank you for your service to our nation at home and or abroad. Just email me before you join, put service discount in the subject line, and send that email to jack at com. With that, we have the Bob Wells Plant of the Week segment to cover today. I've got an interesting one for you guys that live where I do, in the south. You don't have to be all the way in the south because, well, I used to live in Zone 6 in Pennsylvania, and this goes up to Zone 5, but it also goes down to Zone 8, so pretty far south. It is called Molly's Delicious Apple. It is adaptable from Zone 5 to Zone 8. It's a, fra- a favorite Red Delicious type apple. So if you're familiar with Red Delicious apples, it's similar to that. But it's for mild winter climates. It's sweet and flavorful and aromatic. Very disease resistant. The color of the apple is red blush over yellow. It requires only about four to 500 chill hours. It uh, best pollinates with Fuji or Granny Smith apple. You can find more on Molly's Delicious apples at Bombwell's Nursery. Bob Wells Nursery does specialize in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, and nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees that I talk about here at the Survival Podcast. Again, you can learn more at BobWellsNursery.com. Remember, Bob Wells Nursery does 10% off for MSB members. Let us now look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1475, and uh, today we have three Um, Hebrew in print, which is the one I'm going to read, because I think it's interesting. Balboa is born, not Rocky, the other Balboa. That's the guy that discovered the Pacific, supposedly, etc. And Michelangelo is born. So Michelangelo and Balboa were born on the same day. If you want to learn more about that, go to tspwiki.com for the year 1475, the Survival and Sustainability Wiki. But Alex Shrug, who is one of our favorite contributors there, has for us today Hebrew in print. Any subject of the first five books of the Bible should include the commentary of Rabbi Sholmo Yitzhakke. Okay, I'm going to read it the way that he has it done fanatically. Shin Lomo Yitzhakke, close enough. More popularly known as Rashi. I like Rashi better. His commentary is concise and enlightening. He died in 1105, but his commentary lives on. At first copied by hand, now it will appear in print. The first book to be printed in Hebrew using a new printing press. Abram Garten will use a new typeface for Rashi's commentary, distinguish it from biblical text. The new typeface will be known thereafter as Rashi Script. Even though Rashi had nothing to do with it, it remains in print to this day. So just to make sure that anybody looking at it knew it wasn't actually the Bible, the Torah, and was commentary, they used what we would call a different font type in today's world. But there weren't a whole lot of different font types around as they were just beginning to start doing printing with Gutenberg's printing press. My take by Alex Shrug, A large part of the Jewish world thinks Rashi is the greatest thing since I split bread. I'm not one of them, thus I was never that interested in learning how to read Rashi's script. I'm a fan of Ben, also known as Nakmaides. His five-volume set of commentary sits on the bookshelf behind me. It was written sometime in the 1200s. From my point of view, Rabben makes more logical approach to biblical text. I could say more, but it gets into issues too technical to handle in a sense or two, so I'll leave it there. What I find interesting about this is that the fact that they actually felt the need to change the typeface. Like the fact that the name of the book, uh, the way the I guess most books probably look the same, but like the name of the book, the words of the book, the fact that it was commentary wasn't enough. Like it was important enough to people in the religious community that they actually used a different typeface for it. And I looked up this Rashi script, and I can't tell you that I can read it because I can't read Hebrew. But I can tell you if you can read Hebrew letters in square type. The Darashi type is very similar. It is, because so when I read Alex's thing, I was like, well, is it like a font or is it like a whole different set of letters? Like, all, like the symbol's completely different. There's a few symbols, I don't know any of them, that are a little bit different, that like really look different. Most of them, I think if you knew one, you, you'd recognize the other. Uh, very similar in some ways to going from block text in uh, Greco-Roman alphabet that we're all familiar with to cursive. What I the reason I chose this one though I wanted to talk about something today that ties back to yesterday. So I talked yesterday about how a school in Finland, or schools in Finland, are no longer going to teach cursive handwriting. Instead, they're going to start teaching kids typewriting right away. And I thought that that made sense. And but I wanted when I looked at this, I wanted to make sure I explained something. I think learning to write in different languages, in different scripts, etc., is awesome. I think people should do it if they want to. I think it should be preserved by those that wish to preserve it. Whether it's for religious reasons, such as, you know, Alex might have, or just for cultural reasons. You know, I would very much like to one day, if I could find the time, not just learn to speak a little Ukraine, but to actually write in it, which is very similar to the Russian language, but has distinctive differences, just because that's my family lineage, and I'd like to know more about it. And I think you only really understand a culture if you understand its language. And I think that's why a lot of people that are of Jewish descent will tell you you can't really understand the Bible unless you learn Hebrew and read it in Hebrew. I don't know that I completely agree, but I do get their point. So that's what I get out of today's history lesson. Now let us get into the main topic of today's show. And I'll tell you, I was going to do a totally different show today. Um, I was actually going to do a show on investing in gold and silver today. And then I went out to fill my coffee cup, and sitting on the counter were beef shanks that my wife had taken out of the freezer uh, that she expected me to cook today, which I'm not going to cook today because they need to be completely defrosted to cook them as one of the recipes I'm going to give you today, how to cook them. And then they need to cook for quite a few hours. Slow cooking is the way you do shank. And I don't have time for both things to happen, for them both to defrost. So they'll defrost, and then we'll have beef shank tomorrow, and today we're gonna have another thing I'm gonna talk about, shepherd's pie. But if you like cooking shows, you have Dorothy to thank for today's show because when that was sitting there, I looked at it, and the first thing I thought of was salt, pepper, garlic, and bacon fat or lard, and let's fry that thing in a Dutch oven and brown the outsides of it and then make a layer. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. When I started thinking about what that would taste like, and it was realized that it's, like, cold today. Like, I know those of you way up north won't consider this cold, but we got out in the 20s last night. All the stock tanks were frozen up except for the ones that have the heaters in them. This morning, I had to go out and break them off with the with the hose so the birds could drink. It's cold, and there's certain food that when it's cold, you just want to eat it. I mean, there's there's foods like I don't really want to eat this in summer, but boy, in winter, this just hits the spot, right? And like like we're not gonna talk about this today, but like a classic from when you were a kid. Those of you that remember this, especially those that played in the snow, imagine coming in from playing in the snow and what's waiting for you. How about this? Sitting there waiting for you is a great big steaming bowl of tomato soup, but not the water tomato soup when you make it with with milk, right? So it's like a cream tomato soup, a little bit of salt and pepper on it, and then next to it is a golden, I know this is highly un-paleo, golden grilled cheese sandwich, right? that 's not a meal for June, but boy that 's a meal for january well i 'm not going to go that unPaleo paleo here with most of these meals um, but i 'm going to go that way things that when you sit down and it 's cold and your your fingers are a little bit cold, your toes are a little bit cold your your ribs are a little bit cold, and you 're trying to get the cold off you 've come in and taken the jacket off, sat down in the warm house, and you bite into it, you feel better right and I thought this is great topic we have a lot of deep heavy stuff we cover here and i got a lot more i've got to cover with you through the end of the year and every once in a while you just need to lighten up but i also want to tell you today why i think cooking really is a prepper topic well i think this is something every prepper should become a great cook Uh, not just because of the world ends and there's an apocalypse you need to know how to make rat taste good which by the way i could make rat taste good if i had to because i think that it is a skill set that is valuable right now today for anybody living the self-sufficient, self-reliant, individual liberty, prepper lifestyle. And, and I'll tell you, first of all, it's because during uh, an emergency, during a disaster, what have you, where you're well prepped and everybody else is freaking out and you can stay home and you're, you're, you know, if your structure is sound and you can figure out how to cook and you're kind of stuck in, being well fed is good for your morale. You can have the whole family stuck in a house, kind of tired of each other, really needing to get outside, but if you put a great, big, beautiful meal in front of people, they kind of chill and just accept that, hey, we're going to be here for a while together, and they commune with each other, and they enjoy each other. So I think that in stressful situations, being able to make wonderful food with what you have by understanding technique over recipe is just great for morale. The next is it saves you money. I went out with Dorothy last night to eat for the first time in a long time. We ate food we really shouldn't have. And what we both said at the end of it was, you know, it really wasn't that good, and it was kind of expensive. It wasn't super expensive, but it was like, that wasn't like fantastic, and I usually cook better than that. So if you're a good cook, you're incentivized to stay home, and if you cook some of the things I'm going to talk about today, you can save a lot of money because I'm going to talk about how to use things that are considered cheap cuts of meat. And make them freaking fantastic. And it also lets you make better use of what you produce. So people say to me, what are you going to do when you have apples coming out of your ears? Well, beyond giving them away, selling them, feeding them to birds, eating some, making cider and meat out of them, uh, we might cook with them. You give me apples and the first thing I start looking for is a good cut of pork. Pork, onions, apples. Or, for instance, with Thanksgiving, I made a stuffing... That wasn't too not paleo because it was one, you know, one loaf basically of cornbread mixed into this whole thing. So it's a very small amount per portion of cornbread that you're getting in it. And the bulk of it was made up with handmade sausage, chestnuts, and apples. And that's just technique and understanding pork and apples go together. Onions and celery go with pork and apples. To to up the stuffing factor, a starchy nut like a chestnut, which is far more paleo than something like a great big thing of white bread, will we'll up that and bring a certain characteristic to it. And then to bind it, a small amount of cornbread will offset that flavor real well. That's all about technique. When I made that, I didn't look up a recipe for that. I just understood those flavors complemented each other. And that lets you make use of what you produce. You start to look at things like, okay, well, I can't grow a lot early spring, but I can grow leeks. So well, what are you going to do with a leek? Uh, leek is an onion. Onions and fat are fantastic together. Onions that are of the leek type are sweet. Sweet, salty, works together. Braise leeks and bacon fat. Blow you away good. Simple, A little bit of salt. You don't need much because the bacon fat's already salty. Pepper, That's it. Braised leeks and bacon fat. Awesome. Fantastic. Kids that I won't eat that, you just put it in front of them and let them get hungry. And When they try it, they'll like it. And it's all about that technique. And that's kind of what I want to go on to next. You know, what makes food really great? What makes the food? Why do you go to some people's homes and when they cook for you, you, just think I could eat at this person's house every day? What is it that differentiates? Because we've all had times where we've decided we're going to cook something new, cook something different. We follow a recipe, and it's not bad. It's just not great. And it's kind of disheartening when you're, when you're trying to learn to cook and things don't come out great. So the first thing is good techniques. So if you're going to fry something and it's swimming in water because it was like the meat wasn't drained or aged right or something, you got to get the water out of it. You don't just cook it in the water. Now you're boiling it instead of frying it. It's just one example of, a, of understanding certain techniques. If we're going to grill a steak, right, this is, this is not recipe, this is technique. If I take the steak out of the refrigerator, because I'm a hypochondriac, and my steak has to stay below in, in storage temperature below 45 degrees forever and always, and if it comes above temperature more than 15 minutes, I'm going to have a heart attack, because the federal government says so, and freak out, and, and I take that ice-cold steak, and I take a nice hot searing grill, and I put it on there, it sticks, But if I bring that steak out and I let it come up closer to room temperature before I season it and put it on my grill and sear it, I get a good sear and it doesn't adhere. That's a technique. It's not a recipe. Right? When I'm going to use onions in several dishes I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to use onions this way, and I want to use the onions to create a flavor layer in the food later, but I also want to use them as a bed to keep the food from being on the bottom of the pan. So if I'm doing a roast, and I want the the roast to drip down, but I don't want it to scorch on the bottom, instead of chopping onions up, if I slice them like round apples, basically, and lay them down in a layer, that holds my meat up, and I don't need a roasting pan. Uh, or uh, 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 I don't need a, uh, a rack. I can set the meat straight into the pan, and I get better contact and better drainage and better flavor development, but I still keep it from burning. If I want to add potatoes to that, I want to roast potatoes, but I don't want the potatoes to stick to the pan, do the layer of the onions below the potatoes, and then the meat on top of that, maybe the potatoes around the meat. And do carrots that way too, and my carrots and potatoes. And if I want to just go these basic old school carrots, potatoes, celery with a meat product and onions, by putting that layer of onions down, none of those other vegetables burn. If I want to roast them a bit, right before it's done, I can mix them up because the onions are soft by then and let them roast, but they're not sitting in there for several hours while I'm slow cooking with the bottom burning and the top not being done. That's a technique. Good techniques are the most important thing with cooking. If a person has good cooking techniques. You could just give them ingredients, and they'll figure out what to do with them. They won't get hung up. They won't freak out. They won't worry about the recipe calls for parsley, and they don't have any. They'll substitute something, or they'll omit it. The next thing, complementary flavors. Fats need something to cut them or break them down or techniques to reduce them. You don't want to make a soup, and then you put a ladle of the soup in your mouth, and there's so much fat in it that it sticks to your lips. So skimming fat when making a soup, for instance, would be a technique to avoid that. But the other things we can do with fats is we want to cook them wanna cook meats with fat that where the fat remains in the meat, but we cook a lot of the excess fat out of the meat, removing a fat cap before we serve it, for instance, and then combining them with tannins. Right? Combining them with tannins. So now we get something like a red wine. That's why you you know everybody that makes short ribs braised short ribs ribs in red wine sauce. Well, it's not just because that sounds cool. It's because the tannin in the red wine breaks all that extra fat down in those ribs so that you can get all that great fat, but you don't get this clingy to your teeth lip thing, right? And then the cherry red deep depth of a good red wine pairs well with a big hearty beef because a short rib is really, really beefy. So those pair Sweet and crunch pair. So texture makes actually a complementary flavor. All right? Uh, The next thing is depth of flavors. And this is where we start to bring things out. Like if we're going to do something, instead of just putting onions in it, let's saute the onions first. Let's caramelize them. Let's get the sweetness out, and then let's cook them into something else. Or another way that we could get depth of flavors is if we wanted to add pecans to something. Pecans would go with a lot of things really, really well. Well, instead of just throwing a handful of chopped pecans in there, if we take a cast iron skillet, lightly oiled, so it's not like frying, and we bring it up to temperature and we put those pecans in there and we toss them around until they – and you don't really look at them. You wait till the smell comes up. So when you start to smell that roasted smell taste, roasted smell to them, the taste of the roasting has come up. And if we add them now to the same dish, now there's this roasted component. It's not just the texture and the flavor of the pecan. You've created a depth of flavor. right? That's what a mirepoix is all about. A mirepoix is equal amounts of chopped carrots, celery, and onion, sautéed down as a base. We can use this for stews and just about anything you would make. You can start with a mirepoix. It's a very simple French technique. Well, those same things, if you just took carrots, onions, and celery and threw it on top of something, it's not going to be bad, it's just not the same as sautéing it first as a base. So, understanding complementary flavors. Just think about the great dishes of the world and what's in them, and those same components can then be used in other dishes. So I mentioned apples and pork. It's just a classic pairing. You have a salty, soft, t- you know, stringy textured meat that just pairs with the sweet, tart nature of an apple really well. Well, what else is also a little bit tart, right? A little bit sour. Well, something like a vinegar. So it doesn't really surprise you then when you think about that a great way to do uh, pork roast, if you're going to smoke it, would be before you put your, your your rub on it, just rub it down with some apple cider vinegar. It helps tenderize it, but the tartness is the same contribution the tartness of the apples have, right? So... Just start to think about what things taste good together, what flavors taste together, and then you look for things that have those flavor profiles. The next thing is, in spite of everything I said, is simplicity. People like recipes that are like a list of 20 or 30 items. Many of the best recipes are made with four to six ingredients, and that's it. And many are made with less. And especially if you take like a seasoning rub and just consider it a single ingredient. So uh, I might do steak with Chef Keith's seasoning. I might do it with just a garlic pepper rub that I'll make myself or something like that. But in the end, it's some seasoning, it's a steak, and you cook it. And the technique of how it's cooked and the level to which it's cooked and the speed at which you get to that, that level is way more important than the ingredients going. We go back to techniques. Keeping the ingredient profile simple lets you actually taste the ingredients that are in the food. So, rather than make a dish with twenty ingredients, if I want to use twenty different things, I'd rather make a meal of four things, and each four thing using about five ingredients. The more simple you make things, the better they are. I met an Italian man in New York City one time. I was up there for a meeting, and we went to the restaurant at the at the, below the hotel. It was a Hotel Pennsylvania, and uh, right across from uh, Madison Square Garden, beautiful hotel, and. There was this little Italian restaurant like in the area beneath the the hotel, and there was this old Italian guy sitting at the bar, and the cook had brought out something, and I didn't know at the time. He had actually made it, and it was just like a linguine pasta with some kale and some garlic and some butter. And then some little chicken medallions that were cooked totally separate on the side, like like something you might use to make like a uh, like a chicken parmesan. But it wasn't chicken parm; it was just a little bit of breaded chicken cutlets. And the guy serves it to him, and he goes, "Get this guy here some too, right?" So the guy just puts. My me and a partner were up there for a business meeting, and they put a little bit on a plate for us, and a little bit of the chicken, and we're eating it. And I'm eating, I said, "This is fantastic." He goes, "I'm glad you like it. I made it, right?" And I'm like, oh. He goes, yeah, this is my place. I own it. And I'm like, wow, well, this is great. And I said, do you know why this is so good? Because it's so simple. And he got this look on his face. Like I thought I almost insulted him at first. And he grabbed me like an Italian guy might do. And he like kissed me on the cheek. He goes, I love you. You're so great. No one understands this anymore. Simplicity. If you're good, you don't need complex. So everything I'm going to tell you today is simple. And that's why a lot of it is good old-fashioned stuff that people have been making for years. And this is grandma-level technology. I do want to start out with the beef shank. Beef shank is a very inexpensive cut of meat. Most people consider it tough. They really don't know how to cook it is, is the problem. And they don't understand how to develop it. And everybody just wants to soak it in red wine. And red wine comes into my cooking with this a little bit, but nowhere near the way it does for most people. I keep this a very, very simple thing. And if, if you want to know why it's actually a beautiful cut of meat to work with, go to the show notes today and look at the picture. So the picture that I have for today's show notes is a, is a, a beef shank or beef shin. And you can get beef shank or shin in two different ways. One is like a long, and usually it's deboned, or there's a long bone in it. And then the other way is where it's cut like a round steak. So it's about an inch thick, and you're looking at it as like a cross section of the leg looking vertically down into it. I prefer that cut, and it's because of the technique I used to cook it. That's what the picture of, their, of it is. But if you look at it, you see like six, seven different muscle groups all coming together down there in the shank. So you have all these different textures of muscles, because each muscle has its own texture. In the middle is a great big bone full of marrow. And even if you don't like to eat marrow, and I don't, it does contribute to the thickness of the sauce and the overall flavor, and the bone also roasted contributes to the flavor of the meat. And then you'll see this beautiful marbling of different fats and different types of fats, different intermuscular fats throughout the whole cut. All of that comes through, and it makes a marvelous cut of meat that somehow has become like a throwaway piece of meat, like most people would make hamburger out of it, and low-end hamburger because it's fatty hamburger, because it's pretty fatty cut. Well, it's wasteful. I mean, the truth is, the fact that you can buy beef shank as cheap as you can, is is a gift, and it's one you should take part in. The uh, the, the stuff we have out there was two ninety eight a pound, that was full price on it, and I found that shank is something that they usually put out about three bucks, three to four bucks a pound because there's people like me to love it and we'll get it when we can. But a lot of times if you're at the grocery and you look you'll see where they mark it down, where it needs to be cooked either in the next couple of days or frozen in the next couple of days because it didn't move. They'll mark it down sometimes for a buck and a half. And this is honestly when you when you eat it prepared right it's something that belongs in a top-end restaurant. Indeed, many top-end restaurants do actually make versions of beef shank, or as the British call it, beef shin. So this is how I do it. I like to do mine in a Dutch oven. okay? And what I start out with is I get my Dutch oven on my stove, and I use usually lard to do this, or bacon fat. Either one works fine. And you want enough to get a good sauté, But you don't want so much of this like boiling in it because you want to get a brown here. And if you get too much fat in a pan, it won't brown right for you. It's like deep frying instead of, you know, or pan frying instead of sauteing. So we want, you know, a thin layer of the the grease in there and we want to bring it up to a nice temperature. Over to the side, we're going to season our beef shins. And again, think simplicity sea salt, black pepper, and a Dusting of flour. I know it's not paleo. It's about the technique. It's about the flavor. It's about a thickening agent. And I'm talking about the same amount of flour that you would use, double what you would do the salt, right? So you might use it, uh, a little less than a teaspoon of salt to a, to a side on the shin, and you just kind of sprinkle it on about double that with the flour, just a little dusting on both sides of it. You put the shins into the pan. You brown the outsides, a deep brown with like a little bit of a crisp glaze to it. You take them out of the pan. Right, You cut your heat on your pan to low now, you slice up an onion the way that I talked about, okay you so you cut your onion, your two ends off your onions, you peel your onion and you cut it in in slices about a quarter inch thick, and make a bed and cover the whole bottom of your pan with onions and set your beef shins on that bed. chop up about three or four cloves of garlic, just toss them in there all right, and then. Chop up a few sticks of celery. Put a few sticks of celery around the shins, on top of the shins, etc. Alright? This is as simple as it gets. And at this point, that's all you're going to put in the pan. Put it in the pan. Set the oven to 300 degrees. Put the Dutch oven covered into your oven at 300 degrees. Let go for about an hour. While it's going... Get your potatoes and carrots ready. We don't want to overcook the potatoes and carrots. Chop up your potatoes into bite-sized pieces. Leave the peeling on them. Get a pot of water. Boil them for about two to three minutes. You can go as long as five if you want to. And drain them. Set them aside and let them cool. Okay? Chop your carrots up and just set them with your potatoes. You don't have to pre-boil your carrots at all. After about an hour at 300 degrees, go ahead and take Out your Dutch oven, take the lid off, and dress your carrots and potatoes around your uh, beef shin. If you want to, at this point, toss a a bay leaf or two in there for a little extra flavor. Put it back in, 300 degrees, for about two hours. Okay? Now what we want to do is we want to take it back out. And we want to kind of do up the the sauce a little bit to be a little bit more gravy-like. So we're going to take it out. It's not done yet. It's okay. We're going to go ahead and remove the the, the the carrots and the potatoes and the beef shin. And a little bit of the onions, if they come, that's fine. We're going to make up a little bit of a row, okay, just a little bit of a row, which is butter and flour. Two teaspoons of butter, I mean, I'm sorry, two tablespoons of butter, two tablespoons of flour, Put the two tablespoons of butter into a a, a saucepan and melt the butter and then sprinkle your two tablespoons of flour in there and stir it up until it starts to cook a little bit. Into that, add one cup of red wine. Stir that up. Now put that into your pan and mix up your pan in your Dutch oven. Take about half of it out into a bowl. Okay. Put your beef shin and your, your vegetables back in and drizzle the bowl of it all over them put the lid back on, and then cook it till it's fork tender, till it's just perfect. So that's probably going to be about another hour. So it's going to be about four hours at 300 degrees to get these things the way that you want them to be perfect. We can do it more simply than that. We can just throw all those ingredients in there and let it go four hours. If you do it in the stages I just gave you, though, it's going to develop a lot more complexity and depth of flavor, and you're not going to overdo your potatoes. You can even... Uh, I would say this would be pr- pretty safe bet. Your potatoes will get fully done at 300 degrees for two hours. Put your potatoes in when you make your row and everything, your potatoes and carrots. You can wait to do that. Or if you just want to make damn sure they're going to be fully done, you can put them in there. Because it depends on how you like your, especially your carrots, so how you like them a little bit crisp or totally soft or what have you. But that's easy. It, it's It's so simple. And when you serve it, serve your piece of the beef shin. Make a little pile of the carrots, a little pile of the potatoes. Sprinkle a little crumbled rosemary on your potatoes. Don't cook the whole thing in rosemary. It'll put too much rosemary. Make the, so now, now that flavor of the rosemary is just with the potatoes. Right? C- crumble a little bit of fresh sage over the carrots. And then do just a little bit of a cracked pepper on the beef. And then drizzle the sauce over the whole thing. And, you know, celery and onions off to to one little portion to the side. And then if somebody wants to mix that all together, that's fine. But that way you've got different flavors. So the celery and the onions are existing just with the sweetness of the onions, the crispness of the celery, and the flavor of the celery, and the natural juices in the red wine. The meat is being enhanced by all that juice, but also by the cracked pepper. The carrots are being enhanced with the sage, and it's really nice to put a little dollop of butter on them. All right, And your potatoes have that classic rosemary pairing with them, yet they were all cooked in one pot together. That's technique. That's the depth of flavor. It's also simple to shit. Very, very simple. Uh Next, I want to tell you how to make beef stew. Beef stew is something that people, I don't really know why, but they make it harder than it is. You need a good fatty beef for beef stew. And it's really great if you brown the beef at the beginning of the process. Okay? I mean, it's it, it, it just comes out better that way. Again, you can dust it with a little bit of flour, but you don't really have to. But I like to use, again, a bacon grease or a lard or peanut oil will work in a pinch. Or if you have rendered beef fat, it uh, works just fine as well. And brown your beef. Salt and pepper on your beef. Brown your beef. Reserve it to the side. There's, there's no more to it. You don't need any special seasonings with the beef when you brown it. Salt, pepper, good hot oil or grease. Chop up one big onion. About five cloves of garlic. Pull your meat out of the pan, add a little more fat if you need to, and cook your onions and your garlic braised, right? So uh, saute them up. Right? A little salt and pepper added to them at that point is, is a really great idea. And then... Put your meat back into the pan with the onions. If you try to do it all together, if you're making... And see, when I make stew, I'm not making a couple bowls. I'm making a big pot. In fact, I might be making a massive pot because I, the, the other thing about this type of cooking is you often end up with, hey, here's tonight's dinner, and let's go can 12 quarts of this stuff. Right? Uh, so it becomes part of your preps as well. Or let's just put it in four or five portions in Tupperware and deep freeze it. Right? Because it comes out fantastic out of the deep freezer. So... We go ahead and we, we we get our our garlic and onion to develop some flavor for us. We put our meat back in with that, and we add about two cups, generally, of beef broth. Broth you make yourself, beef stock you buy from the store. You can make it up with a product called Better Than Bullion, but about two cups of beef broth. We don't eat that much because we're using good fatty cuts of beef, and we want to cut them, you know, spoon-sized cuts of beef. That beef's going to drain a lot of juice out, Okay. And I like to do my stew, stews in the oven, and I like to do them at about 280 degrees, really, really slow, really, really long time. Uh, then for my basic flavoring, I use a couple bay leaves, and I use a big handful, no sprinkles, a big handful of fresh chopped parsley. Like the curled parsley, the stuff they put on your plate to make it pretty. A big old handful of really fine chopped parsley. Mix that in there. Um, you, you see, with celery, carrots, and potatoes, you can't go wrong with a stew. You want, and it's, but how much, size it to how much meat you have. And how what you want your ratios to be. Celery, carrots, potatoes. What I like to do with those, though, is I like to put those aside. I Chop them all up, get them all ready to go. Uh, your potatoes to you keep them from browning, you put them in a bowl with water. Don't keep them from turning brown on you. And set them aside. Put your meat in the oven for about two hours at about 275, 280 degrees. And let it get a good start. And then add your potatoes, carrots, and celery and mix that up. Right? And then continue to cook that until the meat is as tender as you like. Your potatoes are soft. Your carrots are soft. Your celery is nicely cooked in. But start with the meat by itself. And as it develops... You know, bring it out, take a look at it, mix it, get everything mixed around so that everything's nicely coated with the juices. If you're not getting as much juice as you want, just add some more beef broth. That's, that's the easy way. You can use water too, but beef broth is the best. When you get it to the point where you're like this, when the meat is like, like that, that beautiful, tender, and I mean, you're looking at, to do this really right, you're looking at at least five to six hours to stay at that low temperature and get it where you want it. Okay, You can do this in a crock pot. It does work. It doesn't come out as great, I don't think. But it's a, it's the mindless way to do it. If you want to just do what I said and go ahead and put your carrots and potatoes and celery in right away, turn the crock pot on, put it on low, go to work and come home and eat it, you will not complain about the results. It will work better the way that I'm talking about because there's more love goes into it, right? Yes, the survivalist just said more love goes into it. Absolutely. So... We're looking at a good five to seven hours at this low temperature. That's why we want to give it at least a two to three hour head start for the potatoes and carrots go in so we don't cook them to oblivion. A lot of people like to put tomatoes or tomato paste in for the whole thing. What I like to do is I like to take about one of those little things of tomato paste, little bitty cans, and mix that up with some water or some beef broth and add that at the time I add the potatoes and carrots. So it's not just simmering in in, in in tomato right from the beginning. So it develops the different layers of flavor, right? And when it's to the point where you're like, that's done, what you're going to probably find is that it's a really thin broth. So all we're going to do, we're going to take a couple cups of the broth out, right? We're going to make up a row, a couple tablespoons of butter, Okay. A couple of tablespoons of, uh, of flour. And a row is always one to one. One fat to one, uh, starch. So a tablespoon of butter to a tablespoon of fat. If you think you have a lot and you want to make it a little bit thicker, go four and four. Whatever you want to do. But you always start out by gently melting your butter. Don't scorch it. Don't brown it. Put your flour in. Stir it up until it starts to cook. So it's not, so that you get it to where it's not raw flour. Then add your hot liquid. Your cup, cup, two, one or two cups of liquid from your stew, and stir it up like a gravy, and then put it back into the whole thing and mix it up. It'll make it all nice and thick, and when you pull that potato out or that carrot out, that gravy will cling to it. If you're going to can it, don't do that. If you're going to can it, or going to can a portion of it, take the part that you want to can out while the broth is still thin, and then, you know, put it in a quart jar and or, you know, a two-quart jar, whatever you want to do as you're canning, and just pressure can that, put it aside, and to a jar you'll make up about a one tablespoon of row. one tablespoon of fat, one tablespoon of flour, mix that up, and when you heat it up, just take your pan, make your row in a pan that you're going to heat your stew up in, make your row, and then dump your can in and warm your can up, and you'll end up with the same thing. So that way you can store it, because if you can it with that flour in there, uh, it just, just don't do it. I'm just going to leave it at that. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. No noodles when you're canning. If you're going to do chicken soup, make the chicken soup. And you want noodles, make the noodles when you heat the chicken soup back up. No, no, uh, no wheat starches in your canning activities. So you end up with things that are more like a, a cake and not a good cake. Noodles will literally explode in a canner. Now here's the thing. Once you know the technique, it's braised the meat. Develop flavor with onions and garlic, right? And you can do onions, garlic, carrot, and celery in the bottom. Chop finely and still add your bigger stuff later if you want to develop like a mirepoix with that. Add that meat. Cook the meat down. Add the, the additional vegetables at a time that makes sense so they don't overcook. Thicken the, 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 the gravy with a row and serve. Once you know that, well, hey, guess what? Squirrel, rabbit, any kind of a hunter stew, same way. Groundhog works good that way. Believe it or not, groundhog's pretty good eating. That's a good way to do it. You can do that with any meat, Uh, especially if you need a fatty meat to really make that work. It's something that's going to cook well for a long time. Now, let's try a different one. Pulled pork is just fantastic, famous here in the South, and I do a lot of pork shoulders and things like that on the Sidebox Smoker or the Smokinator or whatever. Get all that wonderful smoke flavor into it, but... You know what? If it's really cold out, you might not want to be out there jacking around with your smoker for hours and hours and, and what have you. And there's a couple things you can do. You can use like the smokinator product, which creates this wonderful smoke for like an hour to smoke infuse the, the meat and then do what I'm gonna say. Or just don't not every piece of pork has to be smoked. Okay? It just doesn't. So if you want to make the most simplistic but delicious pork you can get your hands on for a pulled pork, like to do a pulled pork sandwich type thing or something like that. It, it is so easy that there's no reason that it should ever be made hard, but yet that's what people do. So what we're going to do is we're going to stick with the same simple technique. We are going to make a pan and we are going to make a bed of onions. We're going to cook the pork on top of the onions so that it doesn't scorch in the bottom of the pan, just like we've said a bunch of times now. That's all we're going to do is take a pan and fill it with onions. We want about an inch deep bed of onions for the pork to sit on. Nothing more. We can do this in a Dutch oven. We can do this in a casserole pan. We can do this in anything as long as it can be covered. We can do this in one of those aluminum foil throwaway pans covered with uh, aluminum foil, right? So you got the aluminum foil pan and you got the aluminum foil that you, that you make a tinfoil hat out of, right? Okay, that's a great way to do it because when everything's over and done with, We can just throw it away. And we can serve the whole thing in the pan. We have one dish for the whole thing. No complexity here at all. The only thing we might need another dish for is to mix up our rub. Or we can just put it on in layers if we really want to. Chef Keith's. Uh, lowest low and slow barbecue seasoning would work good for this. But it's gonna do better for you in that smoker environment than what I'm about to give you here. This is a simple rub that I use for this type of pulled pork. And it is, again, simply fantastic. And what I'm about to give you is not Jack Spirico's rub. Okay? It's not anything special. If you go to hundreds of different barbecue forums and ask for a basic, uh, rub for pork, you're gonna get the same recipe. Why? Cause it works. It's about and you might need to make more or less, but you can scale it up or down. It's a quarter cup of brown sugar, a quarter cup of paprika, about 3 tablespoons of salt, 2 tablespoons of black pepper, 1 tablespoon of cayenne. If you don't like spice, you can eliminate it or cut it down to like a quarter of a teaspoon. I recommend you use a little bit of cayenne in here. Just a, there's a smokiness and a spiciness. You go to a half teaspoon if you want to, keep it down. Um, but some cayenne and, and the, the official recipe would be a tablespoon and then about uh two teaspoons of dried mustard and you mix that up in a bowl and you're gonna use two uh, a spoon and and two forks and one roasting pan to make this dish and that's it you, you you take that uh pork pork shoulder pork butt roast big thick juicy one is the way to go with this big fat cap on the top and rub it. Like you're massaging it with apple cider vinegar. Just don't not drench it. Just give it a rub of apple cider vinegar. Again, this is something you want to take out of the refrigerator an hour or two before you prepare it, right? And you can you can. There's, I'm gonna give you uh, the quick way and the overnight way to do this. So we take it, we rub it with the apple cider vinegar, we let it dry a little bit so it's still sticky, and then we just rub it with our rub. We take that and you can do it right away if you want to. Set it on top of your onions. Cover it with foil or cover with the roasting pan cover or whatever. Put it in the oven at 300 degrees for about five to seven hours. You'll know when you open it up and take a peek at it. And you pull the fork and you take the fork and you touch it and you start pulling and the meat just starts coming off. Until it does that... Keep roasting it. 300 degrees is the temperature. Here, for you guys that are Monty Python uh, fans, the number is 300, and the number shall be 300. Three is the number, right? the, the rabbit. Okay, for the pork, the number shall be 300, and 300 shall be the number. Not 299, not 301. 300 shall the number be. doesn't really have to be that, but that's just a perfect temperature to do this in. When you look at your pork shell, you'll probably see that there's a big layer of fat on one side. Always put that up in your roaster. Put that in there, roast it for about you know that length of time. When you take it out, all you have to do is then gently lift well you probably need a couple big spoons or something to do this, or if you you know your hands are clean and you've let it cool a little bit, take the roast out of the pan and set it onto a cutting board, okay You'll have this gorgeous juice, just gorgeous juice. And you'll have these onions. Okay, Take your forks and kind of mash your onions, these soft onions, into your juice. And add about an equal amount of b- the barbecue sauce of your choice to the juice. Just dump it right in there and mix it. It'll be screaming hot. And it'll dissolve in nicely. And mix it up. You can do a homemade barbecue sauce. You can do a store-bought. You can do your you know, whatever brand you love best. Just mix that in there with the onions and the juice. Now... Over to the side, let your pork rest for about 20 minutes out of the oven and let the temperature come down a bit before you do this. It's not going to dry out. It's pork. It's going to stay juicy, but you'll just be a happier human being if you're not just getting blasted with heat when you do this. You just take two big forks and start pulling the meat, and you'll have a big fat cap. You want to get the fat off and get rid you know. Chop it up, give it to the dog, whatever. It's too much if you put it back in there. So your big surface fat, take off, reserve to the side. Then take your fork and just start pulling it off the bones. And take your two forks and put them into the meat and just start pulling with your two forks in opposite directions. So it gets stringy. And as you develop it into a big pile of stringy pork, put it back in the pan that you cooked it in. Okay? Do that until there's nothing left except the bone or two, depending on what you cooked. Mix it up with the onions and the sauce. It's going to be a perfect serving temperature at this point. Cover it over with foil or the roasting pan cover and just serve it like that. That's it. Onions, pork, barbecue sauce, rub. That's it. Four ingredients. It will floor people. People that are barbecue fans that are like, you got to smoke it, will go, this is great. No smoke. You can smoke it. There's a lot of ways you can add a little smoke flavor to this. You can do a quick cold smoke for 30 minutes before you start it. It's up to you, but you don't have to, right? No one will bitch about this. Not a single person that likes pork anyway is going to be upset about this. There's people for religious reasons or whatever don't eat pork. I I have to tell you, I don't know another meat you can do this with this way that will come out the way that it will. Um, You can do a lot of things with beef and all, but for that recipe and that simplicity, this is fantastic. If you want to make it a little more Carolina, you add a little bit of mustard and a little bit of vinegar into your barbecue sauce mixture. That's not true Carolina, but it'll bring it that direction if that's what you want to do. I don't like that. And I'm okay with eliminating the dry mustard from the rub recipe I gave you. I usually don't use it. Okay. What I actually usually do is I get brown mustard seed. Okay. Whole brown mustard seeds. And I put that in my rub. Instead of a a powdered mustard. But that's a variation. I gave you the classic pork butt rub. And it works when you smoke. It works in anything. And it's so simple. And that sugar caramelizes with that fat. And the juice that you end up with those onions in that pan are fantastic. Things you can do to liven it up a little bit. You know, garlic never hurts. Five or six cloves of garlic chopped up included with those onions, no problem. That's about as far as I would go, though. I wouldn't add anything else to this recipe. And, yeah, I like to be paleo, but that on a toasted bun, freaking amazing. Absolutely amazing. Give it a shot, especially on a cold day. And when you're cooking for family, you know, around the holidays and all, and you got all the family over, but it's not the big holiday meal, and you just want a lot of food, man, it's great. And pork shoulder is not that expensive. You can get a nice big pork shoulder, you know, for less than 20 bucks usually if you shop around a bit and it just it's just a fantastic way and you can do it with any big cut of pork just the butt the boston butt roast pork shoulder roast they just tend to come out really really good that way. I'm going go fast on the next one because I've given this recipe out before but it is so simple and so delicious and so easy. And those of you that keep chickens that need to occasionally cull roosters and things like that that have like, you know, yard birds that are a little bit tough that aren't going to make a good grilled chicken or whatever and you only want to make so much freaking chicken soup. Right? We call this taco shredded chicken. I don't remember where Dorothy got this recipe. But this is, this doesn't get easier. Okay? So you take your chicken, and you, you, you size the other ingredients, uh, which are three, four other ingredients, to how much chicken you use. And I'm, I'm not gonna try to even give you numbers. You just look at it, and if there's enough to, to basically mix it in and get it coated, it's enough. You take your chicken portions, it could be breast, it could be bone-in, it could be skin-on, it could be whatever you want it to be, and you set that to the side. You don't do anything to it. In a crock pot, you dump in a jar of salsa of your choice and a packet of taco seasoning. If you want to do a lot of chicken, you do two jars of salsa and two packets of taco seasoning. You squeeze two limes into the one-in-one, so if you do... If you did um, two and two, you would do four limes. Squeeze the juice of two limes in there. Big handful of chopped cilantro, stir it around. Set it on high and get it at least warm enough in there so that all the taco seasoning incorporates into the salsa. Take about half of it out, throw your chicken in, Put it back on top of the chicken. It's just easier than try if you especially when you're making a pretty big crock pot full of this, it's easier than trying to mix it in there and try to stir it around and get all the chicken coated to just take some out, put the chicken in and dump it back on top of it. Set the crock pot on high for about two hours. After about two hours, turn the crock pot to low. Let it cook for another two and a half, three hours until the chicken is just soft. Turn the crock pot off, take the crock pot over to a working area, remove the chicken from the crock pot, leaving all the juice behind. Okay? If it's got skin on, deskin it. If it's on bone, debone it. Take two forks just like the pulled pork, shred the chicken, put it back in the crock pot, mix it up. That's it. You can serve it as now that makes a fantastic filling for enchiladas. You can do it with tacos, you can serve it just like that uh with any other items, just almost like a chicken chili. So you can do anything you want to with that when you're done with it. And it's so simple, and it's so good. Now, we made it the other night, and we weren't happy with it. And we think it was the brand of salsa we used. You want a good pop in salsa, good onions, uh peppers and things like that. There's nothing wrong with, like, let's say, chopping up a few jalapenos and adding them to that or what have you. I'm just giving you the base recipe to work with. Don't hesitate to change my recipes ever. My recipes are guides. My recipes aren't even recipes. They're combinations of food. They're meant to be evolved and done with as you please. Now, on that, there's no reason not to make chicken soup. Chicken soup is fantastic if you know how to make it. And it's so simple, there's really no reason to ever buy chicken soup, ever. And you don't really ever need to buy bullion or anything ever either. It just depends on how much chicken you have to work with and how many parts of the chicken you have. I'm going to give you like my preferred way to make chicken soup. The way I like to make chicken soup is every time I process chickens, whether I buy chicken or I grow chicken or whatever, if it's a full-on bird that's been plucked and I haven't done my you know, de-breasting, de-thigh and bone skinless stuff that I do with some of my culverts, I just don't have time, I will go ahead and part the bird out and take the back, the neck, and the wingtips, and I'll reserve that. Until I have, a, you know, if I have all of that, maybe three or four uh, chickens worth of that. And I'll just put that into a, a pot of water with salt and pepper and garlic. Right? And I mean, a lot. I use a lot of garlic. I use about eight cloves of garlic when I do this. And I simmer it. And I simmer it. And I simmer it. And I simmer it. I skim some of the foaming fat off as it first starts to come up to a boil. So I take it up to a boil and then I turn it down to a simmer. And I simmer it until all the meat, all the fat, all the cartilage, everything just lets go and falls off. Okay, Until when I go to pull the meat off the bone, the bone looks polished. And the bone is flexible by the time I'm done doing this. To make a really good, it's a meat, cartilage, fat, bone stock that you're making. To make this rich, deep flavor. right? And salt is all you need to go with it at that point. Taste it when you salt it, and you know, salt it lightly when you start. You can't go tasting it until the chicken's cooked. Okay, so if it's raw, you can't taste. You can't go tasting it right away. But salt it lightly. But as once the chicken's cooked and you know it's safe to taste, it taste it and and, and bring the salt up to where it's pretty good. But you probably would add more if you were eating it yourself. This lets people that don't like too much salt. Add their own. It also leaves room for the fact you're going to be doing other things later and you're going to change the flavor profile. But that's how you make your stock. When that's done, take all the chicken parts out, de-skin, de-meat, de-bone everything. You make a pile of bones. They can go to compost. You make a pile of skin and cartilage. They go to the puppies. And then all the pieces of chicken that you pick off go back in there. If you've done what I said you have all these backs, you have plenty of meat to make chicken soup. If not, you can add other meat. You can take a couple drumsticks or so and put them in you when you're making this to, to increase the meat amount in it. Just do whatever's natural. Another way to do it is if you do roasted chicken a lot. When you're done with your roasted chicken, usually you usually have a lot of meat on the back. Bits, so you know, Just chop it all up, cut it into pieces, and store that. And you can make a bone stock out of a roasted chicken just as easy. It'll take actually less time because the meat's already cooked, right? Uh, and you can do that, and actually develops other flavors. If you've done a good nice rub and a nice basting, roasting uh, with that chicken, that's going to carry through to your soup. Either way works. I've done broth from nothing but chicken wingtips. And it comes out fantastic because there's a lot of cartilage in there, and it gives it that that deep texture, right? So you can do any parts of chicken to make this. So that means if you go to a market where they have, like, chicken backs and necks, and they sell it for next to nothing, you can buy that and make your, your stock and get a lot of your meat and everything else with, with that. So once that's done and you have that meat back in there, I chop up celery and carrots and I put it in there. And usually I go a big handful of fresh part, not, not the dried stuff, fresh chopped parsley um, into it. That's it. That's it. If you want to do noodles, cook the noodles separately and add them to a bowl, and then put the chicken noodle soup or the chicken soup over top of them. That way you don't get too many noodles. The noodles don't blow up in your chicken soup. If you're going to can this, never put the noodles in there. Can it separately. Now, let's start making something what we have left over using the same principles. When we make that chicken taco, the shredded chicken taco stuff, there's a huge amount of juice in there. So what we can do is when we're done eating it, you're probably not going to eat all that juice you're going to use like a slotted spoon and you're going to end up with this reserve of this really great chicken stock with this Mexican flair going on to it. So we take and we make up another batch of chicken stock and we combine those two together, including any of the leftover chicken tacos, shredded stuff that we didn't eat. We put that together, carrots and celery, and to that we add simply some corn and black beans. Now we've got a Southwest style chicken soup. Real simple, real easy, same techniques. All fantastic, all great for this type of weather we're having. Now let's back up and see some other things we can do. Let's say we want to enhance the the original chicken soup, right? Just the plain, everyday chicken soup. We want to enhance the herb quality of it and bring it some more flavor. We want to do it in a way where people can control how much they get and they don't have to have it. It's up to them. You've made a base chicken soup, a great seasoning for your chicken soup instead of just salt and pepper. In a, a coffee grinder, put about a. Ta- you can make two tablespoons, three tablespoons. I don't care, but just this is your base recipe: a tablespoon of black peppercorns, a tablespoon of thyme, a tablespoon of rosemary, and a tablespoon of salt. Close your coffee grinder and grind it until the pepper is well ground, but not powder. Right, so it's all incorporated, mixed together, and set it in a little jar. And you just sprinkle as much as you want into your soup. It'll blow up the herb character, but it won't. Some people don't like that much of it. Some people don't want any of it at all. Really, really simple, really easy way to just make something a little bit better without even doing very much. Okay, you want to turn it to a garden vegetable chicken soup. This is easy. You stick with your, you stick with your base chicken soup. Get yourself a zucchini squash and a yellow squash. Hard this time of year, but during the summer, serving the soup at a lower temperature will make it fit the summer weather. And just slice up a a green and a yellow squash. Summer squash I'm talking about. Again, zucchini and yellow crookneck. Shred up a good handful or two of of cabbage. Like a napa cabbage is really good for this. Have your soup completely done. Your, Your carrots and celery are soft. Add your cabbage at the end and simmer for like another... Five to ten minutes, till the cabbage starts to weep a little bit into the soup, and then add your 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 zucchini and your yellow squash, and just warm them through. Serve that, fantastic. Same dish, totally different appearance, totally different serving characteristics. Bring that temperature down before you serve that. It's more of a summer version of it. Real, real simple. If you want to make that in the summertime, and you've canned chicken soup now, just when you warm the chicken soup up, add the cabbage and the uh the, the the squash to it at that time. If you don't like cabbage, don't use cabbage. You know what's actually awesome in there? Kale. I know it sounds a little crazy, but the kale can go in about eh, 30 minutes before it's done. It cooks down a lot softer. Just shred it up, chopped up kale. If you want to do it with your, you know, canned chicken soup, You know, simmer it in some hot water for about 25 minutes and then add it to your soup. You can do that with the kale and the the squash or just the kale. These are just great simple ways to liven things up. Really, really simple. Even though we talked about the corn and the black beans going in the southwest style, garden vegetable, fresh cob or two of corn, okay? So good quality sweet corn, maybe you've grown yourself. And now we're back to summertime because we've got the fresh on-ear corn. Take your basic soup that you're going to add your squashes to. Take a grill, get it up to a nice temperature, rub your corn with some oil, salt and pepper, and roast the corn until the, and keep turning it till it starts to just blacken a little bit. Let it come down so it doesn't burn your hands, cut it off the cob, pitch that in with your, your, with your other vegetables. Fantastic. Easy, and now we've done something else with depth of flavor, the smoky roasted component to the corn. Could we roast the corn that we throw in for the Southwest version? Absolutely, right? But I would, I would avoid things like peppers in chicken soup. If you want to do them for serving, slice them thin with or without seeds, like a hot pepper, and serve them on the side so that people can use them more as a garnish so they don't cook through the whole broth. It's too much. It'll off-put the soup, but like a crisp... Nice little bit of jalapeno in the Southwest version. Awesome. These are all really simple things. Um, another cut of meat you can usually get cheap, like lamb's expensive. All right. So lamb is especially, you know, and everybody wants the big rib chops or the, the rack roast or the Lego lamb or, or what have you. But what you can usually find cheap relative to the, the cost of lamb is what they call shoulder chops. Now, a shoulder chop from a lamb is basically the same thing that you're looking at when you see uh, a Boston butt pork shoulder roast, except instead of selling it as a shoulder hole, which they usually charge more for it, by the way, uh, they t- take it and put it on a meat saw and they cut it into steak-sized portions and they call it shoulder chops, but it's, it, that's what it really is. And they're very fatty, and that can be a little bit off-putting to somebody. And there's not a lot of meat, there's a lot of bone, like a high bone to meat ratio there. So, uh, but they're they're a really great value. Now, these pair beautifully with potatoes, absolutely fantastic, beautiful pairing with potatoes, and potatoes and lamb both have good, uh, let's say, a good culinary relationship with our friend rosemary. Rosemary and potatoes, bam, rosemary and lamb, bam. Now, r- r- lamb is a fatty red meat, so it's going to work well with the red wine. And the red wine is going to help break it down. So here's how I like to do this. So, this has a little bit of extra prep time in it, but not really that much. Take your lamb chops and don't drench them in red wine. I'm not talking about soaking them. But like in a Ziploc bag, put all your lamb chops in there. Roll them in salt and pepper or give them a little seasoning of salt and pepper first. Put them into a Ziploc bag and put some red wine in there. I, I don't know, a couple glugs. Enough that when you zip the thing shut, you can kind of massage it around and all of the lamb gets a little bit of red wine on it. Set it aside. Don't do this overnight. It'll overdo it. You want to give it about two hours of this treatment. The the tannin in the red wine is going to start to break the fat down and the muscular tissue down in in the lamb. When you're ready to cook it, take the lamb out and go ahead and probably just, you can throw that in the pan later, but... It's probably better since you're going to put the wine in toward the end of this recipe, and it's been sitting there with the raw meat and all. It's probably better that you throw it away, okay? Because you're not going to cook it that long after you add a little red wine at the end of this. So you you discard that. Pat it dry. We're not trying, because we want this meat dry when it goes in the pan so that it will braise, okay? And it's already had salt and pepper, so we don't need that. We're going to dust it with flour. I don't mean cake it. I don't mean roll it. I mean, again, almost like, almost like you're putting salt on it again, but you're doing it with flour. Make sure your hands are dry so the flour will just dust on both sides of it. That's all we're going to do. We're going to take a pan, and we're going to go back to our good old friend. Bacon grease or lard, or we can use oil. Do not use olive oil for this. Every recipe you're going to see, uh, you're going to see olive oil with the lamb. Olive oil is beautiful with lamb. Olive oil goes on at the end of cooking. You do not cook at high temperature with olive oil. When you get over about 280 degrees with olive oil, it starts to get a a, a taste that's a little bit rancid, a bitter taste, right? Olive oil is a low saute temperature. Up to about 325, you get away with it. You get up to 350 degrees with olive oil, and it just doesn't taste right, and it ruins all the wonderful reasons you're using it in the first place. Coconut oil, if you don't want to use lard, will work fine at these higher temperatures because you're going to have about 350 degrees. The 370 degree oil is what we're going to do this in. A small layer of it with garlic. Garlic is the key here. And we are going to take and we are going to just brown those those shoulder chops on both sides. We are going to take them out of the pan. We will have already done the potatoes the way that I talked about before. We're gonna slice the potatoes into bite-sized portions this time. We're gonna boil them for a couple minutes. We're gonna take them out and we are gonna let them we're gonna put them in cold water to kill the cooking, and we're gonna drain them and we're gonna let them sit there until we're ready to do what I'm about to talk about. We're gonna add a little bit more fat. We're gonna put the potatoes in there and we're gonna pan fry them till they're nice and browned okay, they don't have to necessarily be completely, totally cooked through, but nice and brown, and we're going to push them to one side of our, we're going to use a big, like Dutch oven or cast iron skillet roasting pan for this, okay, or a big stainless steel roasting pan or whatever you want to cook with, Something we can put on the stovetop and in the oven, okay, once those potatoes are nicely browned, we're going to go ahead and put the lamb chops back in, we're going to add about a half a cup maybe of red wine to to the, the pan at that point. We are going to sprinkle it with rosemary, salt, and pepper at this point. We're going to put it in the oven at about 400 degrees, uncovered, for like 10 minutes only. We're just going to really bring the temperature up. We're going to start getting the, 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 all the little juices and bits in the bottom of that pan boiling. Okay, or simmering, I should say, so that the wine cooks a little bit in with the juices. Right, We're going to keep an eye on this. We can dry this. It's going to be hard to, but we can dry this out if we go too long. 20 minutes is about as long as this thing needs to be in the oven for. We're going to pull that out. We're going to take our lamb shoulder chops. We're going to serve that with the potatoes to the side, and we're just going to drizzle the cooking juice over the top of the both of them. That's it. There's nothing more to it. If you want to do a vegetable, you add a vegetable to it of, of your choice. But I'll tell you, for most people, that'll be the yeah, heck you're supposed to be paleo. Listen, you're talking about a half a handful of potatoes to go with a couple uh, lamb chops. It's a very small amount of carbohydrate. Potatoes are one of the more benign things from the starch world. You don't have to do potatoes with this. You could do this with parsnips and carrots. You wouldn't have to boil them. You would go ahead, Bill, and you would braise the, the parsnips and the carrots and all this wonderful fat and the lamb flavors and stuff like that. You might deglaze a little bit with, with some red wine at that point right if the pan's sticky when you go to do any of these things deglaze it a little bit with a little red wine with this particular recipe other things you might use a white wine or just a little bit of water or a little bit of beer to deglaze with deglazing when your pan is starting to get all those wonderful sticky flavors on it but it's too sticky to cook it's going to scorch burn whatever you hit it with a little bit of liquid and you use your spatula and you just de- take it off of there and then you cook into it all right so that's another really simple fantastic way to use a very cheap cut of meat and uh, it's it's awesome. How about beef heart? Beef heart, this is the problem. There's two problems with beef heart. One, people are afraid to eat it rare, uh, so it turns into rubber. And two, people are afraid of it because it's a heart. I'm going to give you the simplest way to do beef hearts inside and outside. All right, And they're both basically the same recipe. You want to clean the heart, and you can look up how to do that, because there's all these little ventricles and things inside it. So you want to to cut it up, cut the extra fat off, and cut all the little tendons and little pieces that make the heart work, and cut it into strips, thick strips. Okay? Real simple. We're going to do it inside because it's cold out. We don't want to go outside. We're going to take a pan. I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over, but this is how simple great food really is if you do it right. Into that pan, we're going to use a fat. We're going to either use a coconut oil, we're going to use a peanut oil, we're going to use a uh, bacon fat, or we're going to use lard. Okay, We're going to heat it up and get it nice and hot. We're going to put in some chopped fine garlic and onions in that. This is going to be a small amount. Again, so it's boiling just so it's good sear. We're going to get that nice and hot. Over to the side we have our our, our, our pieces of beef heart. We're going to hit them with a little bit of salt and pepper. That is all, nothing else. We're going to take them, we're going to put them in the pan. We're going to cook them till they have a nice, good-looking uh, cook to the outside of them. But when we cut them open, they're going to be a medium. They're going to be a pink with juice on the inside. We're going to take them out of the pan. We're going to let them rest for a little bit, and we're going to eat it. That's it. You do the same thing on the grill, except you're grilling it. So you salt and pepper your uh, your, your beef heart. You put it on the grill. Don't overcook it. It goes from being this tender wonderful meat you do want to slice kind of thin while you're eating it because it can be even a little even that way a little bit tough but it goes from that to being this tough horrible thing that fast if if we overcook it, it it just it just doesn't work anymore you want it nice and red and it's not gonna hurt you that it's red it's a fine meat to eat red and those of you that are iffy on heart it's not a kidney it's not a liver it's not a stomach. It's not an intestine, it's a muscle. The heart is a muscle. It's the one organ meat that really is a meat meat. It is no different than a steak, other than in texture and shape and function. But it doesn't filter anything like a liver does or a kidney does. It's not a brain. It is the same substance, the same type of protein that the meat that produces a chop or a steak or a roast is. So it's it's a good entry point for people with with organ meats. There's some other things we can do, though, if we want to make it a little bit fancier. So let's take our beef heart. Let's braise it in that nice, beautiful fat. Let's get it out while it's still nice and red. We're giving it some time to rest. Let's deglaze that pan with a little bit of red wine. Into that red wine, let's take some thinly chopped shiitake mushrooms and a little bit of fresh onion to kind of liven up what we've just created. Let's braise those mushrooms till they're just cooked through. Now, let's take the mushrooms and put them next to the heart. Now, let's take the juice that has the mushroom flavor to go with that wonderful heart. Let's ladle that over the beef heart strips. Bam, you just took it up. I mean, you just took it up a whole new level. And it was so easy. A little bit of red wine, just enough to deglaze it. Mushrooms, the mushrooms speak for themselves. They don't need much. And when you, when you go to serve that, you put a little bit of salt on top of the mushrooms, maybe a little bit of pepper. That's it. Nothing else. It's all you need. And the mushroom flavor in the sauce just will bring out the beefiness of the beef heart. Um, If you can't get over that the heart is red, you're just one of these people, use when you make the beef stew recipe, chop up beef heart, and use about one-third beef heart in relationship to how much of whatever type of other beef you used in your stew. If you like lamb, you can use cubed lamb the same way I told you to make the stew and make a stew that's more of a traditional Irish type of stew with the same exact recipe for the stew. All this stuff is simple, right? If you really want to make heart and you want to cook it through and you want to do like a slow-cooked heart, I almost hate to tell you this because it's such a wonderful meat cooked to a medium um, or just added as an adjunct to a stew to, to beef up the stew, really. But you, you can do it, and I'll try to give you a, a, a really cool way to do it. So cube your beef heart, almost like you're going to do a stew. And go ahead, and you do want to do this in like a, a, a saute pan or a cast iron skillet. Um, same thing we've been saying. A little bit of garlic, a little bit of a fat, a little bit of dusting of flour, and braise the outside of it. Put it in a crock pot. Okay? Cook it for about, uh, two hours in the crock pot because you're gonna go from wonderful, rare, tender to rubbery to back to soft again. So when you're, when you put it in that crock pot by itself, it might be a little bit, not having much, much, uh, uh moisture. So I uh, like a half a cup of red wine, a half a cup of, uh, of beef, uh, broth or a cup of either. But I would say a half and half is about the best to do this with so that if there's some moisture in there. It doesn't have to cover all of it, but it's moist. And over a couple hours, you want to, you know, maybe once every 30 minutes, open it and stir it so that it's all good and coated and let it start to cook. At that point, it'll be getting to where it's going to start to really go back to tender, okay? Because you've made it rubbery. Now we've got to it back to tender. Now let's get a little bit creative. Let's get a little bit creative about what we we, we put in there with it. Get some sweet potatoes. Cube those up. And get some parsnips. And cubes, cube those up. And to that, let's go with a classic, uh, thing that would go good with a stew type thing, celery. So about equal amounts of celery, parsnip, and, um, and, uh, uh, uh sweet potato. The, 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 the parsnips almost have a sweet carrot-like component to them in a little bit of a different softer way. And we could even add a little bit of cubed up turnip or rutabaga or something like that, but I would just go with the, the, the parsnips, the carrot, or the parsnips, the potato, and the celery, sweet potato. And then cook that until those vegetables are soft. By the time those vegetables are soft, the beef heart's gonna be nice and tender. That's gonna be awesome. And we can thicken it with a little bit of roe if we want to, we can just serve it that way. Um, it's, it's gonna be really nice if we, about 30 minutes before it's done, add some fresh chopped parsley to it and a little bit of fresh sage. Those two will pair real nice with that. Real simple, though. And if you have to cook your heart all the way through the first time you give yourself permission to eat heart, that's a good way to do it. Now, for the dove hunters out there, when you clean doves, you can do a dove in about 30 seconds. You pull the breast out. Well, and I'm not going to go through how to do that. Those of you that hunt doves will know this. And when when you open the bird to pull the breast out, the heart's right there. Most people throw it away. If you, sh- I mean, if you shoot six doves a year, I-, I get it. Don't worry about it. But if you shoot, you know, a couple limits of doves a year, and maybe some buddies do that don't want the hearts, you just pull that heart out and, and pitch it aside. And all I do is rinse them and keep them in a Ziploc bag. It's like get a great big Ziploc bag of them. <laughs> this is this is so stupid simple and it's so fantastic. Get a skillet, put your fat of your choice in there, garlic. And onions in the skillet. Saute them till they start to soften. Salt and pepper on your hearts, throw them all in there and saute them till they're they're cooked and you just taste one. And when you really do want, these are going to cook through. You can't leave these red. There's no way. You got all these little bitty things in there. But as soon as they're cooked through, get them off the heat. That's it. And then you and a couple of buddies sit around with toothpicks and start stabbing and eating. You'll end up stabbing each other for the last couple of them. Heart is something, there's, there's so many different animals that we, we eat meat from, and we always see the heart as like a, a form of the offal, the, the waste. A heart is just a, another muscle, and it has, it can do anything with it, except it's a very dense muscle. Whenever you look at cooking uh, a piece of meat, the way that you're going to cook it is going to be dictated by how that meat's used. If you look at something like filet mignon from Macau, it's these two strips of meat. It's not the, ten, it's not the loin, it's the tenderloin. Right. if you were to open the animal up and remove all the innards and look at the backbone from below, you'll see these two strips that go down the uh, the spine on the bottom of the spine. That's the tender one. That, that muscle gets very little use, so it's very, very tender. If you look at something like a beef shin that we started out with, it's a tough cut because it's bearing the entire weight of the animal for its entire life, so it's natural that that, that muscle gets used more, so it's tough. The heart is like this hybrid thing. It doesn't bear any weight, but it's ba-boom, 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 constantly. Animals asleep. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. So it has this dense muscular structure. Very little, if any, intramuscular fat. Intramuscular fat in the heart is not good. You should have fat around the outside of the heart, and that's okay. As long as there's not too much, and it's just for you and the cow as well. But because of that, if we cook it quick and we leave it red, it's tender. But as soon as you go past it, it toughens up. So then we have to treat it once we've done that like you would any cut of beef that would be generally considered a, cut of, uh, a tough cut of beef. But since it's so low-fat, intramuscular, it needs to be cooked in a nice, moist environment, and it needs some added fat so that it doesn't dry out. Okay, the next one I'm going to give you is so stupid simple that you're going sh- to be sure there has to be something more to be done, and there isn't. There isn't at all. And you can do this with chicken thighs. You can do it with drumsticks. You can do it with quarters. I just would not do this with breasts. I would not do this with a, with a poultry white meat. This could be done with turkey thighs. If you, you know, if you, if you care to to part out your turkey or whatever. Uh, it could be probably done with, with duck. It could be done with goose, but it's so simple to do with chicken. And if you think about what is a cheap cut of chicken, it's thigh and leg. Skin on, bone in is really what you want to do this with. Okay, you're back to your roasting pan. You're back to your onion layer. Okay, so we're going to cut the onions about a quarter to a half inch thick, and we're going to make a nest of onions. Now we're going to go, and we don't have to pre-boil the potatoes, but they'll come out better if you give them two minutes in the hot water, hit them with cold water in a strainer, and then take your potatoes and make a layer of potatoes on top of your layer of onions. Okay, that's all. Then we're going to take our chicken quarters. And we're going to, we're going to take a knife and we're going to cut the skin. Three little cuts into the skin. Okay. We're going to rub them in a peanut oil is probably best for this because it's hard to rub them in baking grease. It's hard to, you know, so what have you. So we're going to rub them with oil and we're going to set them on top of the potato bed. We're going to add about a cup of white wine, maybe a little bit more, maybe a cup and a half, depending on how big your pan is and what you're doing. A nice moist, so you when you look down, the onion should be simmering in wine once it's hot, to give you an idea. It shouldn't be just a, a layer underneath. It should be a good, like the onion should be almost submerged in the white wine. Simple, easy, no problem. Salt and pepper on your chicken, on the, uh, on the do it on both sides, um, and then set it in there. And then the rest of the, everything, you're just going to on the upside of the chicken. Rosemary, thyme, paprika on the chicken. Good coating of paprika. It helps the skin crisp. Bake, 350. It's probably going to take an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half for the chicken to cook all the way through and the potatoes to be soft. When the potatoes are good and soft, it's probably done. That's it. There's nothing more to it. You take your, You take your chicken out. You set it on the plate. You take your potatoes out, you ladle the juice over the potatoes, a little bit over the chicken, that's it. Serve it like that. If you want a vegetable, you add a vegetable to that, serve to however you like it. You want an easy vegetable to serve with this that will just push it to like, so simple but so good. Fresh green beans or frozen green beans. Either or, cut in about thirds to halves depending on how big your beans are. Get A, a, a wok is great for this, to do this with. Get a wok. And into that wok, take and put some bacon grease. And the grease can come from bacon you've already cooked. Chop your bacon up, right? Reserve the grease off from your chopped bacon and put the grease in the wok. Get it good and screaming hot. Throw your green beans in there and wok toss your green beans until they're done to your liking. Bright green, a little bit soft. When that's done, take your bacon and throw it back in the wok and warm it through toss with your bacon and take that off to the side put that on the side with your chicken and your potatoes you can thank me later it's fantastic it you you, you when you cook chicken this way this slow cook three and a quarter to 350 degrees depending on your oven and you plan with it a little bit you get these wonderful, the soft melting fat into the potatoes. The onions bring the flavor up. I don't really eat a lot of the onions. I might put just a little bit with my potatoes. If you like onions a little bit more than I do, you, the onions are pretty good too. But I like just the juice and the flavor from the onions and the onions keeping those potatoes from sticking to the bottom of the pan. Just absolutely outstanding. How about my garlic chili chicken wings? So these are something that I do prefer to make on the grill. But I actually like to finish them on the grill. So to make my garlic chili, chili garlic chili chicken wings, the first thing we need to do is make the garlic garlic chili pepper oil. Okay. So what we want to do now is we want to take a small saucepan and we want to fill it about you know depending on how much we want to make at one time around halfway with peanut oil. And peanut oil is what you want to use for this. A big handful, like about as much as you can hold in one hand, of black peppercorn. Put it in there. Dry. Thai chilies. So I get mine from Amazon. If you put dry Thai chili peppers in Amazon, you'll find a place you can buy them. They ship them right from Thailand. They're about $3. bucks. i will put a link in today's show notes. You crumble up a bunch of those. I don't know, a couple handfuls of, of, of crumbled. Throw them in the oil. Stems, seeds, all. Just throw them in the oil. Um, a, you take a, um, a whole head of garlic. So as many cloves as make up a whole head of garlic. Peeled. Cloves, cut in half, cut to thirds or quarters, but cut, throw them in the oil. That's it. Turn the heat on low. Very, very low. You need to do this at least a day before. Turn the heat on low. Bring the temperature of the oil up. Watch the temperature come up. Keep stirring it. Keep paying attention to it. This is the only hard part of the whole recipe. And it's not even that hard. You just have to pay attention. Because you don't want to walk away. You don't want this frying, like deep frying. When it just starts to get the little bubbles coming off it, where it's just starting to try to fry, kill the heat, take the pan away from the heat, off the heat to a cold burner, put a lid on it, let it sit. Let it sit. The next day, and you can leave it just sit out at room temperature. It's not going to go bad. It's oil, garlic, and peppers, and chili. Strain it into a jar so you have it to, to use as you like. At that point, I like to keep it refrigerated, uh, but you want to take it out a few hours before you work with it so it's not all pasty. But that'll keep it from going bad on you. Uh, from going rancid or what have you. Keep the flavors nice and fresh. Cause you, I like to make like a quart of this at least at a time. So that is the, the, the magic, so to say, of the garlic chili chicken wings. It's that oil. And that oil can be used to fry just about anything, believe it or not. I mean, it it does potatoes beautifully. If you like Jerusalem artichokes, the Jerusalem artichokes fried in that are just fantastic. It'll be like this rosy red, beautiful stuff. Okay, so now we want to make the wings. This is just simple. All we're going to do is put, so you take your chicken wings, cut the tips off, reserve them for making stock because they're useless to you. And then cut them into the the, the drumettes and, and and the wings. So you've got two, you know, you make each wing into three pieces and two are for cooking. Put them all in a bowl. bowl. Add enough oil that you can get them all nicely coated. Put them into a, a roasting pan that has um, a grate of some kind. Something that keeps them up off the bottom. So we're not going to do the onion trick or whatever. We actually want the fat to drain off of these things this time. Um, and we're going to then coat them with Garlic powder, onion powder, paprika, and a little bit of chili powder, like chili powder you make chili with, okay? And we're going to bake them at about 375 degrees for a half an hour. We're going to take them out and we're going to turn them because they're going to be nice. They're going to start to get this nice kind of brown to the top of them and cook that skin and dry the skin, and the bottom's going to be moist, and it's not going to hold. We're not going to try to season them on that side. We're just going to flip them all over, and we're going to do garlic powder, onion powder, paprika, and chili powder, and we're going to cook the other side. Okay. After about an hour, they're pretty much done, so half hour on each side that way. Now, what we can do now, if we want to just keep cooking them inside, and that's how we want to do it, We're going to take and we're either going to mix about equal amounts of brown sugar and water, warm water, or honey and warm water. We're going to mix that up to make a glaze that's going to crisp nice and turn brown for us. We're either going to leave them in the pan that they're in. We're going to take the pan out, set it on top of the stove, and we're going to switch the oven to broil. If we're going to do it this way, we are not going to ever walk away from the oven. Okay. And we want to make sure that the ri- the chicken wings are pretty much done. If you have to cook it a little longer than an hour to get them fully done, fine. You want them nice and tender. We're going to take a, a like a like a brush, like a barbecue brush, and we're going to w- brush the top of them with the with the sugar water mixture basically. And we're going to put them in under the broiler and we're going to watch them and as soon as they start to crisp, we're going to pull it out. We're going to flip them. We're going to hit the other side with that stuff. We're going to put them back under the broiler, and as soon as they look crisp, and you might like crisp a little unevenly, you can turn. be careful you don't burn yourself while you have broil on. You can rotate the pan to kind of even out the crisping, but do not walk away because it goes from crisp to burnt like that. And we're going to take them then out, and that's it. They're done. They're ready to be served. You can take the juice that will be in the bottom of your pan, if there's if there's much of it. A lot of times it will all cook off, but if there's some down there where you can deglaze it, You can take that aside and mix it with a little bit of any kind of sauce of your choice to bring the flavor out of barbecue, a mustard, whatever you like with that type of a wing, and you can use it that way, and that's it. They're They're just there. They're like a great finger food. The way I prefer to do it, I don't like to trust the broiler for this. I take them out. And I take them out to my grill, use the gas grill, I fire the gas grill up, and I finish them on the grill and crisp the outsides up on the grill. It's much easier to cook them in the oven and finish them on the grill than do them completely on the grill. It's a lot harder to keep them from burning on the grill than in the controlled temperature of an oven. Those are fantastic. I will tell you this. If you like hot spicy, this is not a hot and spicy thing as you would think it would be. The Thai chilies, when they're done in the oil that way, contribute a lot of flavor, but not very much heat. It's like it's a heat that I would even say it's not spicy at all. But people that are sensitive to spice say, I, I, "I taste a little something spicy in there." It's probably more the black pepper, right? And if you want to bring the heat up just a little bit, when I said put the onion and the garlic and the paprika and the chili powder on there, hit it with a little black pepper too. I almost always use black pepper on mine, but it's it's up to you how much spice you want. If you want to bring the oil temperature to a higher degree. Use a fresh hot pepper or two in your oil. you got to adjust the heat your own way. Think about oil, and oil, you know, when you're eating these things, it will stick to your lips a little bit and all. So if you're using something like habanero or something like that, it doesn't just heat. It it can get where your lips are kind of burning and stuff like that. So you want to really be careful how much you use. I've done this to bring more flavor to it into the hot oil, Put one or two habaneros whole. Don't cut them open. Whole and only leave them in there for about an hour in the hot oil, and they'll all start to come down in temperature. Then take them out and you know pitch them, and that'll bring some of the habanero flavor without a lot of the heat. If you want to bring the heat, just cut it in half, and just just you know you can you can put habanero in oil like that for like 15 minutes, and it brings a lot of heat. Or if you want some heat but you want to bring it down, switch to something like a Serrano or a Fresno or something like that and add some fresh peppers, but keep using the Thai as well. And you can use different levels of pepper to bring up different levels of heat if you want to bring them hotter. I prefer with wings because wings are such a a a family or large group food to not bring the heat up in the wings directly, to serve hot sauces, hot peppers, etc. along with them and let people adjust the heat according to their own desires. The last one I want to talk about today is shepherd's pie, and I want to tell you, when people hear shepherd's pie, they think, boy, that's off the paleo track. It depends, right? Because if you're not familiar with shepherd's pie, it's basically meat, vegetables, and mashed potatoes, and then we bake it until the potatoes turn brown on the top, and then we serve it like a piece of pie, right? And, well, wow, there's a lot of starchy, potato-y stuff there. Really? Depends on how much potato we use. How thick is that layer? That layer can be anything from four inches to a half of an inch. Now, if we go a half inch and you serve a a standard portion of this, which is a little probably if you made like a bare palm of your hand. So you're not making a fish. You're just bringing the tips of your fingers to touch your palm. Probably about that size would be about a typical portion to serve of this. And you only have a half inch of potatoes there. If you fold that potato half inch layer twice – You'd have a, 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 a what, two-inch thing of potatoes about as big around as a, a, one small, little bitty small, like, red potato. It's just not that much. You can't eat it every day, but this time of year, if you're working hard, you're out in the cold, you're burning more calories, it's not that big a deal. If you want to go a little thicker on your potatoes, fine. If you have people that like the potatoes and, and what have you, you can go thicker on the potatoes, and when you serve your own portion – scrape the nice roasted brown part of potato off the top, set it to the side, and discard a little bit of your potatoes, put it back on top. You know, you can, just like cutting a bun thinner is the same same effect. But shepherd's pie, I'm going to make fake shepherd's pie tonight, I'm going to call it. Here's why. Dorothy took out the beef shins. I looked at the beef shins, said, you want those? She goes, yeah. I said, there's a problem. She said, what? I already told you what it was. I can't defrost them and cook them today. I don't have time anymore. There's not enough time for both of those things to happen. Uh, I did have time to defrost ground beef that I could make a shepherd's pie. It's a quick recipe. It doesn't take a long time to make a shepherd's pie. So we looked in and we had some free-range grass-fed beef, and I'm like, well, I could do that and make a shepherd's pie. We have leftover potatoes from Thanksgiving. I want to get rid of them. We have all the vegetables. It's easy. So I'm going to make a shepherd's pie. Real shepherd's pie is not made with beef. I don't care how many recipes that call it shepherd's pie and say, add beef. It's a lie. How many shepherds have you seen with a cow? Shepherd's pie is made with lamb. You can do it with ground lamb, which is traditional, or if you have cheap cuts of lamb, the wood would be more traditional, okay, to real shepherd's pie would be cubed. So you take your cheap cuts of lamb and your scraps of lamb, and you cube it into small cubes, about a half inch cubed, and you use that like ground beef or ground lamb in your shepherd's pie. Because most of your shepherds in making traditional shepherd's pie. This is a traditional shepherd's dish, it is very, very Irish. You don't have a meat grinder. Okay? It's, it's you know, it's 1,700 in, in the highlands of Ireland. How many meat grinders do you think these shepherds had where this dish originated? Not many. So I'm going to give you the modern version of it, and you could do it with either beef or lamb. And I, I challenge you, though, sometimes to try doing it with cubed meat. Get some you know, lower end cuts of meat. Simmer them and, and give them more time to tenderize. And that's the thing. You have to tenderize the meat more, cook it longer by itself, and then add it in. It would also be very traditional that a family that had eaten lamb regularly because they were shepherds that had little, like, you know, roasted whole legs and stuff, had little bits of the shank and stuff that they had pulled off, might reserve those and after several meals make this using that meat that's already been cooked. So that would that would take away from the need to tenderize it a lot more. I know lamb is tender, but certain pieces of it aren't quite as tender, especially when cooked in a cube versus ground. Now, before I tell you how to make this and, like, piss people off, because that's not the way you do it, you use peas and onions or whatever, I'm going to tell you that shepherd's pie is like, I don't know, say, making a steak. Everybody you talk to probably does it differently, and as long as you do it well, it tastes good. There, there's as many recipes for shepherd's pie as there is anything else. My preferred way to do it is I like to take and saute ground meat or cubed meat with garlic and and fat, and I prefer to use again a bacon fat, a lard, or a butter uh, for that. And I saute that meat till it's cooked through, and I reserve it to the side, and I actually go ahead and put it into your casserole dish that you're going to cook it in, or a Dutch oven you're going to cook it in. Make a layer of it, then put whatever. Your vegetables of choice are on it, on top, to make another layer. You can do, if you want to do, like, I really like to do corn. I know some people are flipping out. I know it's not traditional for Northern Ireland, but it tastes good. Corn, green beans, and carrots. And I actually like to do, like, a thin layer of the green beans, a thin layer of the carrots, and a thin layer of the corn, not by the medley that's already made up so that they're in different layers. It looks cool, and it just... It's just neat, right? So you make your layers of that, and then you you make a layer of your mashed potatoes. And then you melt some butter, and you brush the top of your mashed potatoes with the butter. And and then you bake that. You bake it at about 400 to 425 degrees, depending on your oven, uh, for about 20 to 30 minutes until the vegetables are nicely cooked through. And if you use frozen vegetables for this, which is great because they're already cut up, blanched, it doesn't take much to cook them through. Until the potatoes start to brown a little bit. If you're at a point where like your juice from the meat and all is like starting to boil around your potatoes and they just aren't browning for you, which happens sometimes, kick the broiler on. Don't go anywhere. It will go like that to, to brown up those potatoes. But you want to brown those potatoes. Take it out. Let this sit for 20, 25 minutes. To cool down so when you cut it open, it's not a wet mess. A lot of people like to do things like add a little bit of wine uh, to the to the meat. I guess you could a few tablespoons if you want to, but I mean like a cup is what they like to do. Or chicken broth or beef broth or lamb broth or, or whatever to make up like a gravy, right? You can do that, but what you end up with is when you're trying to serve it, you end up with this soupy mess, where there's plenty of juice from the meat and then the vegetables, when you cook the vegetables, they kind of weep down. So if I do anything, I add like a few tablespoons of beef broth or a few tablespoons of a red wine or a few tablespoons of an extra fat like butter or something like that instead of like a, th- like a really soupy gravy. And I just prefer it that way. But there's nothing wrong if you want to add a cup of chicken broth to it. It actually tastes really good. It's just a lot soupier than I would prefer for it to be. And honestly, chicken broth, if you're going to use like a cup or more, is better than a beef or a lamb broth here because it's almost too much. It's almost too overpowering. You want the flavors of the vegetables, the potatoes, and the meat to come through without it being too heavy. So the chicken broth gives us this nice salty uh, character. But again, I wouldn't use a cup. I would use a few tablespoons because that meat as it cooks – So you're going to saute it so it's cooked through, but it's not fully cooked, and it's going to cook another 25, 30 minutes in that oven. The juice from that meat's going to come down. You want a fatty meat. You don't want to go too lean with your meat. So if you have a really lean meat, you want to add some extra fat. Again, some butter works nice or some lard or what have you or uh, some rendered uh, beef fat, anything like that to to bring the fat level up. So we're doing grass-fed beef. It's not high fat, so we'll add a little bit of butter to it when we put it into the serving pan. That's it. That's the whole episode today. I hope you're hungry, and I hope you try some of these things. And I hope you get what I said. Like, learning these methods of cooking, or these techniques, I should say, and giving yourself the freedom to experiment with foods like this saves you money. It helps you use the things that you produce. It helps you avoid waste. It helps you use leftovers. It helps you buy less expensive foods. And I'm not about living cheap, but I am about living frugally smart. So, I'm not going to eat uh, a braised beef heart or something like a, a low-cost lamb shoulder just to save money. But if I can save money and make something fantastic, well, that just makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you start looking at uh, things like you know steaks and what have you, the price of meat keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And I'm not saying I'm not going to be cooking a nice, you know, uh, New York strip steak or anything like that. But you know, if you're doing that, plus you're doing beef shanks, plus you're raising your own chickens, and you're learning these different ways to incorporate all of these meats into your cooking, all of a sudden, living really healthy and living really well gets easier to do. Instead of worrying about, well, exactly what's in this, it's you know what's not in it. There's no process. I didn't say anything today that would bring processed foods in, the little bits of dusting of flour or what have you. You can use an organic whole wheat flour. I don't care if you're paying $20 a pound for it. The recipes I gave you today, it would take you a year to use a pound of it. Right? There are just little bits of it here and there. Potatoes. You can buy organic potatoes. They're one of the, more, the better values that are out there. Uh, or grow your own. Or use sweet potatoes if you want to reduce the glycemic index. All of these things are possible. Japanese purple sweet potatoes taste a lot more like uh, a regular potato than a sweet potato, and they have that lower glycemic index if you're worried about that. And my solution is I use regular potatoes, and I eat less of them. Now, eat more meat and more vegetables and just a little bit of potato to bind these foods together because these are very much meat and potato style dishes. Give them a try. Ask me questions in the notes, but do not ask for recipes. I just gave you the recipes. I don't know how much I use. I really don't. The stuff where I measure, I gave you the numbers. Most of this stuff, I look at it and go, that's about enough potatoes to go with that. That's about enough celery. That's about enough carrots. Let's put it in there. Ah, a cup of red wine. Yeah, you know what? There's so much I'm making this time. Let me add another half a cup. That's how I do stuff, folks. I do it on the fly. Give yourself the permission. Work on the techniques. Develop the depths of flavor, and you can make fantastic stuff. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.